0: This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 30th of July 2022. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up on today's programme, the historian, broadcaster, author and screenwriter Alex von Tunzelman will be here to review the day's papers. And then Monocle's contributing editor Andrew Muller will be telling us about some of the week's stranger news stories.
1: We learned that former US President Donald Trump, despite giving every appearance of being a blustering clown, indulged and rewarded vastly disproportionately to his demonstrable talents and virtues, is, in fact, the single most persecuted individual in the history of his country.
0: That's all ahead here on Monocle on Saturday on Monocle 24 with me, Georgina Godwin. Now, let's have a quick look at the day's headlines. The Ukrainian military announced this morning that it's killed scores of Russian soldiers and destroyed two ammunition dumps in fighting in the Kherson region, the focus of Kyiv's counter-offensive in the south and a key link in Moscow's supply lines. Meanwhile, Kyiv has called for the United Nations and the Red Cross to be allowed to investigate the deaths of more than 50 Ukrainian prisoners of war in an attack in occupied territory. Front-running former president Lula da Silva called on his supporters to take to the streets to help him win Brazil's election in October and deny far-right incumbent Jair Bolsonaro a second term. The leftist leader and Workers' Party founder said the Brazilian economy will recover solid growth only if there is income distribution in the South American country. And Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese today unveiled the wording of a draft referendum question as part of moves to enshrine an Indigenous voice in Parliament. The government is seeking a referendum which is necessary to make changes to the Constitution on recognising Indigenous minorities in the Constitution and requiring governments to consult Aboriginal people on decisions that impact their lives. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Well, it's a lovely, relaxed Saturday morning here in London, and I'm delighted to be joined by the historian, broadcaster, author and screenwriter, what an array of talents, Alex von <laughs> Good morning, Alex. Good morning,
2: Georgina. I understand, though, you've been taking a break from all of those impressive labels. Yes, I've been on a staycation this week, um, which I sort of feel in the era of flight cancellations and rail strikes and so on is probably what a lot of people are doing this summer. Um, so, I'm afraid it hasn't been too thrilling. I've got a new boiler. (laughs) That's exciting. (laughs) Yes. And I've repotted lots of plants.
0: (laughs) So just pottering around at home, really, which is actually such a luxury.
2: It is. I mean, I think that's the thing, you know, and obviously we all did it for so long during lockdown and the pandemic and so on. But there is a slight, I think, you know, things seem to have sped up so much since the kind of return to work and so forth. Um, that actually taking a moment to take a break does now feel very luxurious, actually. Mm, mm. Well, I have had a bizarre couple
0: of days in that I spend a lot of time at literary festivals and you know exactly what to expect and I go in, I meet the authors. Uh, There's a wonderful kind of ready-made social scene. It's people that I know and it's all lovely and that's what you do. Uh, this weekend, though Thursday and Friday, I was at a music festival again to interview an author because they have a lovely kind of <laughs> kind of words tent. Um, but I haven't been to a musical festival since sort of twenty years ago in Glastonbury when you still had to kind of get in for free by crawling under the fence through <laughs> the muds <laughs> and then taking so much drugs you couldn't re- so many drugs you couldn't remember. <laughs> so, I don't
2: know what uh, you mean. <laughs>
0: um, this was extraordinary. And at first I was sort of slightly freaked out because I have a 22-year-old daughter who said she had absolutely no intention of coming with me. And in fact, she was going to stay home and do the cleaning, she said. She was going to clean the wow. house from top to bottom while you, mother, she looked at me disapprovingly, are going off to a music festival. So I duly did. Um So WOMAD has been going for 40 years and I have to say that everybody there, or many people there, have also been going there for 40 (laughs) years. I think that me and my partner brought the demographic down significantly. (laughs) And I was really struck by WOMAD woman who is, um, and I mean absolutely no disrespect by this, but a woman of a certain age whose hair is either sort of blue, again, no disrespect, yours is a gorgeous (laughs) colour, but she's either gone for some kind of really out there colour Or it's kind of frazzled and grey and just a bit longer than it should be and mm. has never been to a hairdresser and always dressed in kind of sort of tie-dye and, and sort of flowy clothes. A lot, quite a few casualties there, people who went to Goa in the 1970s and have never really quite come back.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it sounds awesome, I have to say.
0: <laughs> Do you know what? They seem to me some of the nicest people. And what I was really impressed by was how large this, this demographic is. And and the fact that almost none of them are in politics, and if the country were run by these sweet, gentle people who just want to listen to world music and have a lovely time, I think we might not be in the state we're in now. Gosh, it sounds amazing. How can we appoint them? <laughs> exactly. Well, and and that's the thing, isn't it? Is that 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 politics has become so toxic that many decent people no longer want to be involved and I think that's that's a real issue. You have to be a certain type of person, usually quite narcissistic to get involved in that kind of job and 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 people who, who, who
2: good decent people generally don't want to do that. I think that's absolutely right. I read a blog post this week by um, a journalist who had gone off and sort of spent the summer in Sweden completely disconnecting and going to a cabin um, and you know sort of travelling around and, and just was speaking about how much better she felt, how sort of moving away from this, realising that you're sort of trapped in a room with screaming lunatics in the UK politics world. And and I thought, God, that sounds amazing. I mean, maybe we should all be... Able to do this, but of course, I mean, I suppose it's privileged to be able to disconnect, isn't it?
0: It's wonderful, and I think it's not just just the UK where it's toxic. I mean, look oh, around absolutely. the world; it's it's <laughs> everywhere. Um, but it's also odd looking back. So, for instance, when you look at the era of uh, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, both of those British prime ministers refused to appoint resignation honours. Uh, they felt that that really it wasn't something that that they had a right to do and neither of them, of course, really approve of the House of Lords. That, of course, is the the senior chamber here in Britain. Uh, Contrast that to Boris Johnson, who has uh, submitted a list of between 30 and 50 new peers. Now, Gordon Brown has written a storming article in The Guardian
2: about this. Tell us what he says. Yes, absolutely. I mean, this is a really quite unusual intervention from a former prime minister because it's incredibly strongly worded. So what has happened is that Gordon Brown has seen a briefing document produced by Linton Crosby's uh, lobbying firm, you know, the sort of Australian lobbyist who's been advising Johnson and various British prime ministers before that and very much involved in Brexit. And, I mean, this seems to be phrased in the most extraordinary language where Crosby's firm advises, you know, very deliberately, this kind of setting up of of a system of pure corruption, really, where these peers will be told, these new peers, um, that... It is absolutely in exchange for the peerage. They will be voting through all Conservative legislation, just rubber stamping that. Uh, They'll be rewarded with further gongs if they carry on and uh, keep doing that. There'll be even more honours heaped upon them. And, of course, if you get into the House of Lords in Britain, that is a sinecure for life. Um, That is a position where you're paid really quite a large salary, extremely generous expenses. Um, Your attendance is your business, how often you turn up and actually participate. Um, And... You know, So this is really kind of a system of putting your cronies in power for life, and it's very hard to get rid of them. I mean, you can now get rid of members of the House of Lords if they really um, disobey the code of conduct. And that's, uh, you know, a couple of times that's sort of happened, although generally they resign before that hits. But um, it's very, very hard to get rid of them. They're not you know there's no limit to the term technically it is really a lifetime job
0: Mm. and of course if you look back already in the House of Lords appointed by Boris Johnson is uh, Lebedev uh, whose father is a Russian oligarch and lots and lots of questions in the media swirling about Johnson's relationship with him and the trip he took to Italy with him which he says was uh, not pre-planned there were no officials with him, no official business took place but never mentions Alexander, his father by name, It's, it's all deeply shady.
2: It is, and I mean, there was a lot of controversy over the appointment of Lord Lebedev of Siberia, as he actually is known, and that is not some comedy title, that (laughs) is actually what he is. Um, Because, you know, and that appointment certainly seems to have been refused at one point by the kind of overseers of that, and yet Johnson got it through on another attempt. So... I mean, I think these are really worrying. And I do, I mean, you know, Labour has had a policy of abolishing and reforming the House of Lords. I mean, I do, a lot of countries, of course, have a second chamber. And personally, I'm quite in favour of some form of second chamber. I think that's not a bad idea. But the current system quite clearly is so open to corruption. Um, and while all political, you know, parties and all, all prime ministers have to some extent put cronies in it. I mean, you know, you're right, Brown and Blair didn't have resignation on his list, but at the same time, of course, there's always a little bit of appointing your people. Um, this is so naked and so kind of extreme and so clearly, I mean, you know, in the Crosby Firm briefing document, once again, it's kind of saying that they, it's, they actually advise appoint a few celebrities or controversial people to distract attention because that will, quote, you know, provide cover for actually getting in this number of 50 peers who will, uh, you know, ensure Brexit continues, a people's Brexit, they're now calling it. I mean, this absurd term. You know, so, I mean, really this is just a level of corruption that I think is completely unacceptable mm-hmm. in anything that calls itself a democracy.
0: And, I mean, also what's extraordinary about this is that, the sort of, the, from the media point of view, is that Gordon Brown has made this very strong intervention. That's unusual. It's really
2: unusual. Um, and, you know, generally speaking, I mean, we have seen this happen a little bit lately because John 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 Major also has intervened and spoken against Boris Johnson's government. But before Johnson, this was incredibly unusual. And I think that probably is a bit of a signal about just how controversial and corrupt the Johnson government has been.
0: Mm, And yet people seem to have slept walk into
2: it. How did it get to this? Oh, my goodness. Well, I think we need longer than (laughs) our show this morning. I mean,
0: (laughs) But, I mean, the point is people were pointing this out from the very beginning, from before he was mayor of London, saying this man is not fit for office.
2: Absolutely. I mean, everybody who knew him more or less said that. It seems to have been the most extraordinary story, and I do think, you know, well, I mean, you know, it could be told now, but I think there will be a lot of reflection in the future on exactly how this point was arrived at. And I think there are a lot of controversial factors, uh, well, a lot of a lot of very interesting factors in yeah. there. Brexit's obviously one.
0: And now, of course, one of the ways that Johnson has been trying to rescue his international reputation is by what he's been doing in Ukraine. Uh, and uh, people seem to to genuinely have a lot of admiration for him for what he's he's, he's done in Ukraine. Uh, one of the, the consequences of the war in Ukraine, of course, is the energy crisis. Uh, and it's left many Western nations planning a return to nuclear power. Now, that brings up a couple of interesting stories that you've found here. The South China Morning Post, but also the FT, with completely different
2: takes on this. Yes, I found this very interesting this morning. So there's the kind of lead story in the South China Morning Post is a rather kind of optimistic story about how China has really kind of, you know, moved ahead with nuclear power technology and should now be selling back to Europe. That uh, really Europe has, although I would say actually the situation is quite different in different European countries, uh, in this piece they sort of get lumped into one. I mean, France, for instance, I think has been quite consistent and... um, And thoughtful about its nuclear power programme, the UK, I'm afraid, I can't say the same at all for. It's been chaotic and constantly changing tack. Um, But, you know, effectively, this is now seen as a great opportunity, that really the countries that have been pursuing nuclear power since 2017 are largely Russia and China. Russia is off the table. Thus, here is China with an opportunity. But we see this at the same time that the front page of the Financial Times is the CBI boss in the UK talking about how ties with China are going to be cut and basically the reality check of British firms are going to have to start making friends in Europe again. And this is coming from the fact that both contenders in the Conservative leadership contest in the UK, Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss, are talking very tough on China, are very much talking a sort of ideological game about cutting ties with China and, you know, in in Sunak's case talking about sort of throwing out various academic institutes and all this sort of thing. So I think we have a real conflict here, which is very interesting to see how it will play out, because there's obviously this ideological desire to move away from China to really uh, disengage. And yet what we're hearing from the China side is that this is a great opportunity because really there's not a lot of choice in Europe um, in terms of energy futures. So I think we're teeing up. For a very complicated and interesting series of choices here. Yeah, uh, interestingly enough, there's, a, there's an article in the
0: in the Telegraph which says Britain will soon have a glut of cheap power and world-leading batteries to store it. Uh, it's saying that trailblazing Britain is leading the most ambitious rollout of offshore wind uh, in the world, and 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 the problem is going to be just where you keep that battery. Uh, technology is going to have to, you know, um, uh, keep up in, in order for that to happen. But but a lot of wind power being developed here in in Britain.
2: Well, I hope so because I mean, you know, I think a really sane response to the Ukrainian energy crisis is that European countries must be investing in renewables. I mean, you know, nuclear power is one thing, but it is complicated. It's incredibly expensive. It's difficult to build. And the expertise is in some places lacking, like the UK, quite seriously. Mm. Um, And there are also long term problems with what you do about disposal, containment, all sorts of other things. I mean, let alone the awful question of, as we know, accidents. Um, And... You know, From all of these points of view, renewables are something very easy to do, especially in the UK where we have really plenty of very, very windy environments um, and plenty of space for offshore wind farms mm. and indeed some onshore ones.
0: Yeah. Talking of wind, here's Andrew Muller. Let's get, <laughs> let's get his take on uh, what we know now that we didn't seven days ago.
1: We learned this week that, what with one thing and another, reigning Eurovision champions Ukraine would not be able to undertake their responsibilities as next year's hosts of the Pan Continental Jingle Joust. Oh. We learned that, instead, last year's runner up, the United Kingdom, would be hosting it instead. Oh. Oh. Settle down. We learned when we looked into it further, because we're good like that, that this will not be the first time that the UK has stepped in to cover for the previous year's victor. We learned that it will, in fact, be the fifth. The Netherlands didn't fancy it in 1960, France couldn't afford it in 1962, Monaco couldn't find a venue in 1972, and Luxembourg, having won twice in a row, couldn't face hosting it again in 1974. Here now follows a mercifully brief mash-up of Luxembourg's back-to-back winners, triumphs which remain, in no particular order, the two most interesting things ever to happen to, in or in any way regarding Luxembourg. Anyway, we learned that as a consequence of Eurovision's announcement, an unseemly scramble was now afoot. Let's have an unseemly scramble effect. Among the conurbations of the United Kingdom, keen to inflict Eurovision upon their citizens and images of such tourist attractions as they may possess upon the television screens of the continent, we learned that no fewer than 17 cities had thrown their hats into the ring. Come on, thrown hats. We should be past needing these prompts by now including Sheffield, Edinburgh, Leeds, Glasgow, Belfast, Aberdeen, Manchester, London and Nottingham. But we learned, sadly... ..that no bid would be incoming from anywhere in Lincolnshire, wherever that even is. We learned that from an absolutely outstanding example of local angle shoehorning from local newspaper The Lincolnite, which ran a detailed analysis of the reasons the county was out of the running, including quotes by attention-seeking local politicians. Just genuinely tremendous work all round. The sombre statement of Lincoln City Council leader Rick Metcalf reflecting on this revelation will now be delivered with due solemnity by Monocle 24's Eurovision desk chief Fernando Augusto Bacheco. I don't think so, because I don't think we've got, unfortunately, the venues and the infrastructure to support an event of that scale. All of us here at What We Learned would like to convey our deepest sympathies to Lincolnshire at this, its darkest hour. However, sticking with the subject of absurd apparitions delivering overripe performances to audiences clearly comprised of appreciators of high camp... Wait for it. We learned that former U.S. President Donald Trump, despite giving every appearance of being a blustering clown, indulged and rewarded vastly disproportionately to his demonstrable talents and virtues, is, in fact, the single most persecuted individual in the history of his country. We learned this from no less an authority than a friend of Trump's who very definitely exists but goes to another school, probably in Canada, which is why you don't know them. A friend of mine recently said that I was the most persecuted person in the history of our country. Me, the most persecuted. We learned from the same speech to the seething weirdos gathered at the Turning Point USA Student Action Summit, whose classmates are clearly not bullying them enough, that during Trump's time in office, one plan had been floated which might have compensated in some small way for the terrible, terrible suffering he had nobly endured. In fact, as president, I wanted to give myself the Congressional Medal of Honour, but they wouldn't let me do it. They wouldn't let me do it. I said, I'm going to give myself the. I've always wanted that. A reminder at this point that the Congressional Medal of Honor is awarded to American service personnel for, and we quote, conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of life above and beyond the call of duty. We learned when we looked it up that the most recent of such decorations awarded was to Sergeant Major Thomas Paine of Delta Force for his role in rescuing 70 hostages held by Islamic State in Iraq in 2015, repeatedly charging into burning buildings while under enemy fire to bring people to safety. In fairness, we did not learn, as we haven't tried either ourselves, whether this is more difficult than maintaining a straight face while telling your draft board that you are unable to serve due to being being afflicted with bone spurs in your feet, so who are we to judge, etc.? And we learned that chess is a more violent game than one might previously have suspected. In Moscow, a seven year old prodigy playing a game against a robot, like from the future attempted to make his next move too quickly for the machine's liking, upon which we learned the robot seized one of the infant's fingers and broke it. All things considered, if this is the opening assault in the incipient conquest of humankind by our looming cyborg overlords, we're pretty relaxed about the prospect. For Monocle24, I'm Andrew Muller.
2: Quite an extraordinary story there. (laughs) I don't know why Andrew's so relaxed about the robots taking over. This seems to be absolutely terrifying. (laughs) Well of course Twitter and Google
0: fired an engineer this week didn't they for for, um, saying that uh, his AI machine had become sentient was a sentient being. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, And that of course brings us to to Elon Musk and uh, his whole spat with Twitter. Now the Wall Street Journal's got a, a big piece on this because of course we knew that Musk was going to buy Twitter, then he wasn't, then he was. Now he isn't, and there's legal proceedings.
2: Yes, um, and he's just, what's ha- just happened, the latest update is that he's filed counterclaims to Twitter's lawsuit, so he's suing them back in the same Delaware Chancery Court. Um, but we don't know what those are presently. They're confidential, which actually that's not particularly. Unusual. There'll be a few days where they have to sort of sort through them in case there's anything that uh, shouldn't be made public in those claims. Um, But this is really warming up to be... I mean, I'm sorry I'm somewhat getting my popcorn out for this trial. I think it's, (laughs) it's absolutely fascinating because it sort of brings together lots, of, I suppose, of great obsessions. You know, what is the real wealth of billionaires and what is the real value of social media are such interesting questions. And then you've got Musk, this extraordinary figure, um there he is still tweeting away on his twitter account you know providing god knows what material to prosecutors Um, it's just sort of remarkably dramatic. It really is. And, of course, it
0: has other implications because he's the boss of SpaceX uh, and of Tesla. Tesla
2: took a hit. They did. And, I mean, I think all of this is probably bound up in what's gone on. And, you know, people have been sort of piecing together a bit the inside story of was he going to buy Twitter, was he not? Was it all an attempt to force down the share price and get it at a cheaper price? But, I mean, you know, you kind of wonder, is Twitter really that? Profitable. Sorry to say it. I mean, I enjoy Twitter myself. It's a great site. But where's the revenue stream coming from, really? So, you know, it's an awful lot of money, 44 billion, that he offered for it to spend on something um, which, you know, has a very, very unclear future of how you monetize it. And I mean, that appears to have that offer in and of itself appears to have delivered something of a hit, for instance, to Tesla's share price, because people were worried about where he was going to finance this from. Mm.
0: And people are also worried about the future of uh, driverless vehicles and so on. One place where it is actually being really investigated is in Neom, which is this new city in Saudi Arabia uh, created by MBS to really diversify away from from oil. But one of the controversial plans there is flying taxis.
2: I mean I know this whole Neon project is so fascinating and so bizarre I mean so it's been going for a few years but they've just sort of released all these images and you know really some more details about how I look my Goodness, it looks like a sci-fi set. So this plan is for this extraordinary 170 kilometre long, 500 metre high, double mirrored wall with a city contained within it that cuts through mountains, desert, everything. This is going to cost well over $700 billion. um, I mean, and counting, I would suggest. Um, And the idea is that it's ecologically efficient, although one really wonders about how you construct something like that really without immense use of resources and power and so forth. I mean, it's also been highly controversial because they've been uh, displacing various people who live along the route, um, the Huetat tribe in particular and various others who are sort of local to that. And indeed, someone was shot by the authorities for protesting his eviction um, in 2020. Um, But there are the most extraordinary pictures of the idea of this city sort of, you know, with, you know, Cloud seedings to make it rain with kind of heaped kind of outside gardens, all sorts of things. And yes, these flying taxis, as you say, going down the middle of it. I mean, is an extraordinary vision of the future, but is it fantasy?
0: And it seems it's going to be built between two huge mirrored
2: walls. I wish I understood the technology behind that. I mean, it sort of sounds to me like a huge fire risk. <laughs> <laughs>
0: exactly. Put a mirror in the desert and see what happens. Uh,
2: so I'm not quite sure, really, of the philosophy behind that. But I mean, the concept art is pretty extraordinary, straight out of a sci-fi movie.
0: It really is. It really is extraordinary. I mean, that further details about the design were released this week, and the the, the photographs and and the designs in 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 the Wall Street Journal but really need to, need to be looked at. Uh, they are astonishing. Um, I think that we should end with a little bit of popular culture. Now, she is a performer that we love here at Monocle, uh, but uh, she's not doing so well in her personal life. I'm talking, of course, of
2: Shakira. Poor Shakira. So I looked at El Pais this morning thinking, you know, they've just had the first monkeypox death in Spain. There'll be some terribly serious stories about that. No. The lead story is absolutely about Shakira, who is in great trouble with the tax authorities in Spain for allegedly, in twenty. 20- Uh, 2012, I think it's 2014, she was living in Barcelona, they say. She says she was not living in Barcelona, she was living in the Bahamas um, and visiting Spain only sporadically. And so there's a dispute about whether she should have paid taxes in that period. And it's sort of got to the extraordinary level. There were lots of opportunities to settle and that hasn't happened. So it's now got to the level where Shakira is facing eight years in prison and a possible 23 million euros in fine. Both. She could, in fact, be hit with both of those things. So, It's sort of extraordinary. I mean, once again, you know, who knows if it will actually get to trial. But even if... The trial doesn't happen. It looks like she will have to turn up to confirm a deal at this point, so she will be taking the stand in mm. Barcelona.
0: Now, the reason she was in Barcelona was that she was playing with the FC Barcelona soccer player, uh, Gerard Piquet, I think you pronounce his you name. Yeah. Uh, and in June, they split after 12 years together. So n- not only is she being persecuted for, for prosecuted for tax, but
2: also she's broken up with her boyfriend. Yes, she has, and I think they've got two young boys, so that's obviously very sad and must be very difficult. I mean, it must be a very tricky situation. But at the same time, you know, these <laughs> the, the crimes she's being charged with are pretty serious, partly because, you know, there's so much money involved. And, I mean, the allegations from uh, the Spanish tax authorities are that it involved a lot of offshore companies that were used to sort of conceal wealth and so on. Now, you know, we all know that rich people do kind of undertake all sorts of schemes, but it's sort of very controversial... What they do and what you know how, what their accountants are advising versus what really is legal. Well,
0: absolutely well, uh, Shakira, we're, we're thinking of you. <laughs> uh, Alex, thank you so much for, for, for coming on the show today. Uh, that's Alex van Tunzelman and I hope you have a very good week. Uh, and uh, that's all for this edition of Monocle on Saturday and thanks to our studio engineer Nora Hall. I'm Georgina Godwin, and Monocle on Saturday returns at the same time next weekend.